We've been doing a sermon series in our church called Church Then and Now, trying to extract lessons from life in the early church and apply them to our circumstances. And I do believe that many of the situations that the early Christians found themselves in are repeating themselves in the current milieu within which we find ourselves. So by, by way of a recap, this, these two episodes revolve around an early apostle of the Christian church by the name of Saul. Saul would later change his name to, to Paul, but right now he's still Saul. Prior to his conversion, Saul had participated in overseeing the execution and arrests of early Christians. He hated Christ. He hated this early messianic movement. He hated Christianity, and he burned a lot of calories, put a lot of energy into trying to stamp out Christianity in its, in its cradle. He receives a commission to go to Damascus, some 270-ish kilometers from Jerusalem, would have taken him several days to get there, to arrest Christians and to bring them back to Jerusalem for trial. So he's a bad dude. But on the way, God, by his grace, shows up in his life in a vision, takes his vision away for a period of time, sends him off to meet a man by the name of Ananias. Paul is converted after having been confronted by God, and he's baptized as a Christian. And all of this takes place in a three-day period of time, which is pretty phenomenal, and it shows the seeker heart of God, the sovereignty of God and salvation, and the miracle of new birth in Christ. Saul then immediately starts to preach the gospel, and this gets him into trouble and puts him in the crosshairs of the rest of the Jews. So here we have this amazing contrast. Saul, the rising star in the antichrist Jewish party, their darling henchmen, to do great evil against God's people. And all of a sudden, the tables are turned and he is now the arch enemy of the Jews that he at, at one point served. Very soon, by the way, Saul would change his name to a Greek form of his name, Paul. And the fundamental reason for that was because Paul wanted to position himself to be an effective missionary to the Greek speaking Jews of Asia Minor and to the Greek speakers of Asia Minor, the Gentiles. Which, by the way, demonstrates once again the missionary heart of Paul, a heart that we should all adopt. He was willing to even change his name. Your name is very personal. But he was willing to change his name to adapt from more of a Hebraic context to a Greek context and I think there's maybe a bit of a lesson there. We won't, won't get into it uh, today. But I think there's a lesson there for this, this whole idea that in ministry, we do need to adapt to the circumstances and culture within which we find ourselves to be all things to all people without sinning. You know the old line, anything short of sin to get them in. We don't sin. We don't compromise our beliefs. But we do need to be adaptable in ministry so we can reach as many people as, as possible. And Saul who would become known as Paul, does that. He then begins a long career as a gospel minister. And because he was faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that also means that he lived for a long time with a big old target on his back. 
He was attacked. He was beaten. He was imprisoned. He was charged. He was shipwrecked. He was falsely accused. Many of those things over and over and over again, repeatedly, in order to win as many people as possible to Christ. In many respects, I think we almost idolize Paul in some of our churches. Like, oh, Paul, this great missionary. Well, we're not supposed to idolize the man, but we are supposed to worship the God behind the man. And from his example, we can learn how to live. But we can also be reminded of how beneficial and how blessed it is to do the same thing for Christ, to live faithfully for him. Here's what you need to know, though. Faithfulness to Christ will require you to live with a target on your back. If you are a passive Christian and the people in your place of employment don't even know you're a Christian, if you more or less just blend in and adapt like a chameleon to the world around you, no one's ever going to call you out for your faith or challenge you for it. You won't be leading people to Christ. You won't be persecuted. No one's going to hunt you down. But in an increasingly anti-Christian culture, we're going to see the dial turned up in the area of persecution. When you take a stand for Christ and you actually declare the lordship of Christ over your life and over your place of employment and over your country, that will offend people. You don't need to be offensive personally, but the gospel itself is an offensive message because it questions who's in charge. It calls us out when we drift into the sin of thinking that we're in charge of our own lives or the state's in charge of our own lives or whatever it might be. The gospel declares the lordship of Jesus Christ over all things, and it calls us to repent and surrender and put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation. And that's an offensive message to the carnal man. So heads up, if you're going to be faithful to your calling, expect to be persecuted. Expect to be persecuted. Now, this is going to manifest itself in a couple of different ways. One of the ways is that the enemy at times will hunt you down. But don't be too discouraged by that because God can and often does provide a way of escape. So here we have Saul, soon to be Paul. He's out faithfully ministering. And there's two episodes we're going to cover. The first takes place in Damascus, the second in Jerusalem. Here's episode number one. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, which is, which is an astonishing statement. The very people that had commissioned him to go to Damascus to arrest Christians now put him on their hit list. They consider him a traitor. But their plot became known to Saul. Here's how fixated they were on Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. Like, who has the energy for that? Who who spends their time day and night watching one single minister of the gospel because you hate him so much? But this is the kind of energy they put in. They didn't want him to get out of the city and escape into the night. So they're watching the gates day and night because these cities would have had walls around them. So if you can't get out the gate, you have to go over the wall. So the Bible says, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. He can't be a particularly large man to be lowered over a wall in a basket. The Bible doesn't take much time to describe Paul's physical appearance, but there are numerous accounts 
in early Christian writings that describe the physical characteristics of Paul, and they all align. We're told that Paul was exceedingly short, under five foot tall, that he was bald, that he had bowed legs, that he was strong and muscular, but he had bowed legs. And worst of all, he had a unibrow, a single eyebrow that went over the top of his eyes. Now, you could fix that with a razor. But if you see someone with a unibrow, it's like, dude, buy a razor. Like, that's kind of weird. So Paul wasn't an intimidating person in terms of his, his physique. He was small enough to be put in a basket and lowered over a wall. He wasn't the kind of guy you'd call to the front lines if you were wanting to have a, a military campaign. Now, keep in mind that in the modern military, it doesn't really matter how big you are unless you're an infantryman. You could sit in an office and push buttons or fly a drone or launch rockets at the enemy. But in ancient times, physique mattered, especially on the battlefield. Saul wasn't intimidating because he was a big dude. But he did have a big faith. All of that energy that he had channeled into persecuting, that tenacious bulldog-like personality that he had channeled into persecuting God's people is suddenly redirected toward the ministry of the gospel. This man from, from day one demonstrated courage under fire, an unwavering zeal for Christ, all commendable attributes which we should aspire to. It might be true that you have held back a little bit in ministry, that you've stayed in the shadows, that you haven't declared your faith publicly, that you, the people that you work with don't even know you're a Christian. And maybe some of it is tied to your physical characteristics. A lot of people are very sensitive about their physical characteristics. Perhaps for you, you're, you're not as tall as you'd like to be, or you have a particular disfigurement, or a disability, or a birth defect, or crooked teeth, or a bald head, or a unibrow that has taken you off of mission for Christ. You know, one of the greatest parts of our testimony is the ability to believe that while man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. And that our identity is in Christ, and therefore one of the greatest proofs of our testimony is to demonstrate a divine confidence that our identity is in Christ. Not a confidence because you happen to be really good looking, or you know, you've been a model, or whatever it might be. But that your confidence is in Christ, regardless of your physical appearance. Now, it's not to say that we shouldn't concern ourselves at all with looking as decent as we can. You know, if you got the unibrow... Put a little space between it. Probably open up some more doors for, for conversation with people. But at the same time, we need to be reminded that our identity is in Christ. And if God can use a guy like Saul, in spite of his rather not so intimidating physical appearance and his past resume as a persecutor of God's people, we're pretty confident he can use anyone in this room to do great things for his honor and for his glory. So we see that in the text. 
At the same time, the goal of the Christian life is not martyrdom. The goal of the Christian life is not martyrdom. We don't need to unnecessarily put ourselves in the crosshairs of evildoers. It's okay to avoid unnecessary persecution at times. This might seem contradictory, but it's not. There are times when we need to run from the tyrants, when we need to regroup, when we need to retreat in order to continue ministry. We've seen this, for instance, in the church in China. For many generations now, they've had to meet in underground locations because the tyranny is so unbearable in the public realm. In Jesus' life, remember in the Gospels, Jesus is sometimes preaching and a mob shows up to arrest him. And what does it say? He slips away in the crowd. He exits from the situation. Paul, on this occasion, went over a a wall in a basket to preach another day. So there's, there's room for discernment. We don't need to cast our pearls before swine, but it's not always going to be possible that we can run, regroup, hide, minister elsewhere. If you spend 100% of your time playing it safe, you're not going to be effective for Christ. There's times when you have to stick your neck out. There's time when you have to speak truth to someone, even at the risk of your finances, your job, maybe your citizenship process, if you're new to the country. We shouldn't seek martyrdom as if it's a desired goal. We shouldn't seek persecution as if somehow we're more spiritual if we've been publicly persecuted. But we shouldn't avoid it at all costs either. The third lesson that we see in this text is that sometimes we will be the ones called upon to protect others who are in the crosshairs. Think about the disciples. They're not named in the text, but they had an important role to play. Somebody came up with the idea, let's get a basket. Let's get a rope. Let's come up with a plan. Let's get Paul out of Dodge. There's many ways that we can support those that are in the crosshairs of public persecution. Perhaps in this country, perhaps in other countries. We do this by praying for the persecuted church around the world. We do this through our financial support, sometimes through legal advocacy. Paul wasn't afraid to use the courts to his advantage. Paul wasn't afraid to appeal to Caesar, to run it up the totem pole, so to speak. Say, I want to go to the next court. I want to go to the next court. I want to make my case known to the courts of the land. It might mean taking in refugees from countries where people have been run out because of their faith. There might come a time when we have to put people into hiding, much like they did in World War II when you had to hide Jews who were being literally hunted down by the Nazis. So here's the question. Do you have your basket ready? Do you have a plan? Are you starting to think about these things? Who might God have already placed in your basket that needs prayer, that needs financial support, that needs encouragement, that needs legal advocacy? They need you to sponsor them so they can get out of a tyrannical country. Who has God placed in your basket? I certainly in no way, shape, or form have experienced very much persecution in my own life, certainly not on the level of Paul or other great Christians throughout history, but I'm sure you've all noticed that the persecution dial is slowly being turned up in Canada. We used to be, we were never a Christian country, but we 
for many generations, we certainly were a Christianized country. We certainly were a country. We had the Lord's Prayer in our schools. There was a general sense in which law is based on God's law and certain things that you that are publicly promoted now in the area of human sexuality were, were forbidden. We then moved into sort of a post-Christian context, and now we're in an increasingly anti-Christian context. And so the, the, the dial's being turned up. And many of you know that over the past three years, myself and others have taken a little bit of heat, shall we say, for our belief in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And this week I announced that, thank God, all my charges have finally been dismissed, which is a good thing. But humanly, there were, there were some dark times, some difficult times, emotionally taxing times. And in all of that, the Lord, of course, was, was my strength, but I can also say that many of you were, were my basket. Many of you, through your prayers and encouragement and support, I was encouraged by that. So I, I know what it's like to feel like I'm being held in a basket, so to speak, by other people, and perhaps many of you can, can relate to that. And I say that not to draw any attention to myself. I've had more than enough for a lifetime. But to remind you that when the church is under persecution, and it is, and it's going to continue, I believe, that the last thing you want to do is scatter and have a every man for himself mindset. We need to encourage each other and support one another, employ each other, pray for one another, take others in if necessary. The second thing that we might experience in times of intense ministry is a bit of skepticism from other Christians. Other Christians might treat you with suspicion, but faithfulness, faithfulness over the long haul is ultimately what will pay off. So just stay faithful. Now, this is a very, very understandable episode. Saul's over the wall. He's out of Damascus. He makes his way back to Jerusalem. When he left Jerusalem, he was a persecutor of the church. Now he's a preacher of the gospel. You can understand the skepticism of the church leaders in in Jerusalem. And there weren't a whole lot of people there with baskets ready to give Paul a ride in. Instead, the Bible says, and when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples and they were all afraid of him for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Well, again, this is not an unexpected response. And there is some wisdom in being cautious about people whose lives were suddenly dramatically changed. It's like, well, is this, is this a mole? Is this person legit? Are they the real deal? Or are they just putting on a show? Or is this some temporary thing? There's some wisdom there, lest the person turns out to be a wolf. But in Paul's situation, the dramatic encounter that he had with Christ, the visible encounter that he had with Christ, and his subsequent ministry and his persecution makes his conversion pretty believable. There is one man, however, that demonstrates gospel optimism, Barnabas. Everyone's like, I don't know about this Saul guy. He might, might be a faker. But Barnabas, who would later become a preaching buddy for Paul, took him in. The Bible says, but Barnabas took him and 
brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. By, your fr- by their fruits you shall know them. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, meaning that he went in and out of their homes, not he was going in and out of Jerusalem, but he's going in and out of their homes and intermingling with them. Preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And then to add further credence to his conversion, it says, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. So a Hellenist is a Jew that for a generation or two or 10 generations had lived outside of Israel in a Greek city. We know there were more Jews in Alexandria, Egypt than there were in Israel or in Jerusalem, I should say. So many of the Jews at this point had moved on to various places along what we now call Asia Minor or down into North Africa, and they would come back to Jerusalem. And so they were Greekified. They had a lot of Greek influence. They kind of thought like Greeks. They spoke like Greeks, but they were still Jews. They were debating Saul. And by the way, Saul wasn't born in Israel. He was born in Tarsus, which is, which is also Gentile territory. So he would have been Greekified or Hellenized as well in terms of his education and upbringing. Saul is debating them. He's engaging in apologetics. Keep in mind, he's a brand new Christian, but he's already debating and publicly doing ministry. But they were seeking to kill him. So this is like a, another episode, sort of a basket number two episode And when the brothers learned of this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus on a boat, by the way. So he's sent back to his hometown. So twice now, he preaches and he's essentially run out of town. He preaches and he's run out of town and his disciples or various disciples of the Lord help him in that process. But I want to draw your attention back to Barnabas's conduct. Barnabas exercised exercises optimism toward this new convert. And I I think there's a a belief system and maybe a practical challenge here for both of us. The, The belief system is we have to be reminded that God literally can save anyone. And Barnabas believed that. But this guy was a persecutor of God's people. Yeah, but God can save people like that. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God can save anyone? Murderers, pedophiles, rapists, liars, adulterers? He can. And oftentimes it's the people that have most dramatically experienced a life transformation that have the greatest appreciation for grace and the greatest motive to share their faith with others who are broken in need of Christ. On the other hand, I'm sure you've all had it. I'm thinking of someone that I dearly loved, that I've known for many years, they're just an extremely moral person. They don't need Jesus. I donate to charity. I'm, you know, faithful to my spouse. Those are often the hardest people to reach because they've convinced themselves they're not sinners. They don't really need Jesus. Saul understood he needed Jesus. Barnabas understood the gospel can save anyone. And that's a belief system that we need to adopt. The gospel can save anyone. And the second principle is that 
it's super important that we encourage new believers in the faith, that we demonstrate that we actually believe in them, that they can be useful to the Lord. The last thing you want to say to a new believer is sit in the back row and wear sackcloth and ashes for three years to prove the authenticity of your faith. We need to fan that flame and encourage it. In Barnabas' actions, Barnabas was, was called the son of encouragement. Barnabas' actions encouraged Paul, no doubt. Well, at least someone believes that I can be useful to the Lord. And we need to do that with a lot of, with young Christians in, in particular, that they can be useful to the Lord. Paul proves his authenticity through public preaching and through apologetics. I don't know how good his preaching was at this point. He would have had a, a pretty extensive um, education in the Hebrew Bible. He only had a limited amount of time to study Christianity, but he didn't wait around until he earned his third seminary degree before he started doing basic ministry. He didn't wait around until he'd read three books on apologetics or attended an apologetic seminar or taken an evangelistic course before he started sharing his faith. I've had people over the course of my ministry ask me great questions like, hey, how do I, do you know of any courses I could take or books I could read that will help me to debate and defend Christianity vis-a-vis -vis alternative worldviews? Uh, is there any apologetic conferences I could go to? And yeah, many come to mind. We've done some here. Remember we had an Answers in Genesis conference here a year or so ago. But the best apologetics training is practice. Just go do it. Just start sharing your story and listening to questions. And there's going to be times when you know, you're, you're with someone and I, I don't know the answer to that, but I'm going to go find out. And you go find out and you come back and carry the conversation forward. You don't have to feel like you won the argument in the moment to be useful to the Lord. I know there's been many occasions when I've been sharing the faith with someone or debating someone. And if you're like me, you go away from that and you're thinking, oh, maybe I could have said that a little differently. Oh, why didn't I think of that? And you tuck that away for the next time. And then you do it again. And then you, you assess that and you tuck it away for the next time. And, and over time, you become more and more knowledgeable and more and more discerning. And you know how to guide a conversation. Just, just go do it. Just go share your faith. You may not be super fruitful at the beginning, they may run you out of town. But when we are faithful to the Lord, over time, the Lord will use us to bear fruit. It is fascinating to witness this taking place in Paul's life. He had put to death or participated in the death of Stephen, the first martyr, who, by the way, was simply trying to feed Hellenized Christians, Greek-speaking Christians. The Hellenists, the Jews that grew up in Greek cultures, hated him all the more, and he was considered a traitor. And by the way, if you're a newer Christian, the people that will probably give you the most hassle are the people you used to run with, <laughs> the posse you used to run with. Why aren't you drinking with us and getting drunk anymore, bro? Like, why aren't you coming over for some token and smoking. Why aren't you going to the strip joint with us anymore? Because I'm a Christian. Oh, you're a traitor. You don't like us. You think you're better than us. You're trying to judge us. The greatest pushback is often from people that we used to practice 
evil with. And the people that are the most eager to see Saul put to death are the people he used to run with. So off he goes to Tarsus. Tarsus, by the way, was a Greek city, very educated. In our culture, we generally run kids through kindergarten, and then we go through an elementary process and a secondary school process, and then there's a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, a doctoral degree you might earn. And there's different things we're learning, you know, reading, writing, arithmetic. And you get into high school and you start to specialize and prep for college. And you go to college and you, you basically consume information. That's what bachelor students are. They're consumers of information. If you go on to a master's degree, you're supposed to become a communicator of information. You're supposed to be able to teach your subject matter. If you go on to a doctorate, you're supposed to be a creator of information. You're supposed to add to your discipline, add some original thoughts to your discipline. We have this process set up. But, but in ancient times, the educational process was different. If, if you went to Tarsus, where Paul would have been educated, you would have taken legal studies. You would have learned about law. You would have taken religious studies. You would have learned about, in his case, Judaism. Maybe he did study some of the false religions around it, but he would have had a good education in rabbinic traditions. And then he would have had an education in what was called rhetoric, which is essentially the ability to communicate, to debate, to dialogue, to, to make a point, to quote from a text. So Paul, Paul was raised in a, in, a, in a town that was rich in education, and he would have had that advantage. And he goes back to his hometown. Now, we don't know how successful he was there because a prophet's not always welcome in his own town, but he retreats for a period of time to his, to his own city. And one might think, well, okay, now this intellectual superstar with the super cool testimony is gone. What in the world is going to happen to the church in Samaria and in Galilee and in Jerusalem? Is it just going to fold? Does Christianity rise and fall on human personalities? Does God need superstars and people with super dramatic conversion stories to expand his kingdom? And the answer is no. No. Throughout history, God has raised up some great men and women who are now in graves, at least bodily in graves. Their spirit is with the Lord. And the church goes on. And before long, all of us will be gone. And the Lord will raise up, if he's not returned first, another generation to fill our shoes. Look what it says here. So Paul is gone for a period of time. Saul is gone. But the Bible says, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Why did God save Saul? For this reason. So that his church might grow, so that people might come to know him. Now, this peace didn't last for very long. And we know, based upon what we witnessed under the reign of the various kings and judges into the old, old covenant, that there are periods of peace among God's people and there's periods of persecution. We know, based upon life in the early church, there was periods of peace and periods of persecution. Paul's conversion reduces persecution for a short period of time against the church, and they enjoy a period of peace. But this is what history looks like. It repeats itself. And throughout history, the people of God have experienced cycles of persecution and peace. Persecution 
and peace, persecution and peace. And yet in all of this, Christ always succeeds in building his church and maintaining a remnant for himself. I think that we've enjoyed a relatively long run of peace in Western civilization where we've experienced a lot of benefits. We've had a lot of freedom to worship God, to raise our families as we see fit. And it seems like we're coming to the end of that. And we're entering now ever so slowly or perhaps more quickly than you might feel comfortable with into a period where the dial is in a very sophisticated way being turned up. And if there's any group to be vilified in the West, it's those that actually believe that the word of God is the word of God, who actually believe that Jesus Christ is the savior of the world and who actually believe that his laws apply. Well, what do we do? What do we, how do we process all that? Well, in times of peace, those are often times when God's people coming out of unique challenges spend a lot of time praising God and thanking him for his deliverance from tyranny or from slavery or some horrendous ruler. And we, we do pray for peace and we do pray for Christian liberty and we do pray for the opportunity to preach the gospel unencumbered and we do pray that our country would be pro-life and all of these Christian virtues and values. But what happens, and again, we've seen this over and over again in history, is when we have peace, we tend over time to grow lazy, forgetful, and weak. Lazy, forgetful, and weak. Among God's old covenant people, they're persecuted by the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, and things get really, really bad, and they're enslaved, and then they pray, and they pray again, and they cast, they tear down the high places and they cast out the idols and they recommit themselves to the Lord and the Lord raises up a redeemer and he miraculously rescues them and everyone's at church. Everyone's praying and praising and worshiping and praying and living for the Lord. And then a generation goes by and maybe another and you start to forget and you grow lazy and you grow forgetful and you grow weak. And then persecution comes up. And it's hard, and we're not used to it. And it serves to separate the wheat from the chaff. And it serves to discipline nations and serves to discipline God's people. But it also serves to strengthen us. We know it. When it's hard to be a Christian, the church always grows. And after a period of time, we cry out to God, and God redeems us, and he rescues us, and we enjoy another period of peace. Now, at some point in time, these cycles are going to come to an end. And the Lord is going to return and make all things new. And it might be pretty soon. But there's been past generations of Christians that have also thought it's going to happen in their lifetime as well. And it didn't happen. So you don't want to sit on your hands and just say, ah, God's coming back. I don't need to do anything. Whatever. Just trust him, O Lord. We need to learn the lessons that God wants us to learn. We want to continue to be faithful to the gospel. We want to continue to be light in the darkness, truth in the lies, righteousness at times of wickedness. And allow God to use us, even if we die for our faith. 
Both of these things serve their purposes. Times of peace, times of persecution, times of persecution, times of peace. God uses these to sanctify and to build up his people. And if my hunch is true, that we're coming to an end of a cycle of peace and entering into a cycle of persecution, our response shouldn't be that of fear. Oh, God's abandoned us. Maybe the atheist was right after all, or the deist was right after all. God started things up and he's gonzo. No, we lean in. We stand tall. If we don't stand tall, we fall. Those are your two options. You persevere. You learn the lessons that God has in store for you. You continue to preach. You might get run out of town, like Saul was. But Christ will continue to build his church. We can be sure of that. See, the wonderful thing about Christianity is that we might not be able to see around the next corner. (laughs) We might not know what God has in store for tomorrow, but we know how this all ends. We've read the final chapter. We know that Christ is victorious, and one day he will make all things new. So be encouraged. Stay faithful. Be part of the remnant. Take a stand. Preach the truth. Defend the faith. Don't let your physical ailments hold you back. Don't let your doubts hold you back. Don't let your passive personality hold you back. Lean in and allow God to use you to bring about perhaps another cycle of peace. And if not, growth regardless, growth in the Christian church and growth in you to the honor and glory of God. 